Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode features Helen Scales, Chris Smith and Sarah Castor-Perry, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, how the pesky mosquito has inspired a device for painless blood testing. And the key to this device is that they can penetrate the skin just far enough to draw blood from shallow capillaries while avoiding the nerves that are slightly deeper in the skin. So the idea is that the patient shouldn't feel a thing when the blood sample is being taken. How lead in the atmosphere creates clouds, and these clouds could be keeping the earth cool. So what this has done is to lead to a reduction in the amount of heat hitting the Earth's surface. And this means that, effectively, by putting lead into fuel and making more clouds, we've offset some of the effects of global warming, which would have been there because of the CO2 that was being released alongside the lead from car engines. And we'll find out how diseases that affect animals, such as the current outbreak of swine flu, can pass into people. Pigs are also susceptible to quite a few strains of avian flu, And when you look at the genetics of the viruses that you find in pigs, it's pretty obvious that not only are they swapping genes between swine and human flu, but they're also mixing in avian virus genes. Plus, Sarah Castor-Perry looks back on this week in science history when Louis Pasteur presented his evidence for germ theory and so became one of the fathers of modern microbiology. That's all on the way. Now, first this week, a new high-tech gadget has been invented that was inspired by the humble mosquito, and it could one day provide diabetic patients with a portable artificial pancreas that would help painlessly monitor and control their blood sugar levels. Well, the electric mosquito, or e-mosquito, was invented and patented by Martin Minchev and Karen Kaler, who are electrical engineers from the University of Calgary in Canada. And they modelled this on the piercing, sucking mouthparts of mosquitoes, this um, e-mosquito device. It's currently about the size of a deck of cards and it contains four microneedles and they're about twice the diameter of a human hair. Now the key to this device is that by carefully controlling the movement of those needles they can penetrate the skin just far enough to draw blood from shallow capillaries while avoiding the nerves that are slightly deeper in the skin. So the idea is that the patient shouldn't feel a thing when the blood sample is being taken. Now the needles draw a tiny drop of blood, less than a milliliter but that's still enough for a lab on a chip sensor in the device to measure blood sugar levels and it sends that information wirelessly to a computer or even to a monitoring instrument worn on the wrist and it can be hooked up to an alarm so that uh, the patient or a doctor is warned if blood sugar levels start to get to dangerous levels. Now Minchev and Kayla hope to start working on making this gadget much smaller till perhaps it might look like a sticking plaster or a band-aid you can just stick that on your arm and um, that would sort of give it this painless way of effortlessly monitoring blood sugar all the day long. And the idea eventually, which is really exciting, is to link this e-mosquito device to another device that would administer insulin and that's that vital hormone that diabetics lack, um, which regulates blood sugar levels normally. And this would essentially create an artificial pancreas which is what most of us have, luckily that does it for us, inside us. But this would be able to monitor the amount of glucose in the blood and then automatically deliver the correct dose of insulin when it's needed to the diabetic patient. So it could offer, this e-mosquito really could offer some hope for the 246 million people around the world who suffer from diabetes and for whom needles and painful time-consuming blood tests are really part of everyday life still. Which is very good news indeed. Thank you, Helen. Now, you've heard the old claim, <clears throat> excuse me, 
every cloud has a silver lining. But now scientists are saying that you've got to add lead to the mix. This is the work of researchers both in the US and in Europe. This is Dan Zizzo and also Ulrika Lohmann. And they've published a paper in the journal Nature Geosciences this week. And what they're showing is that if you take substances that are in clouds, so you take the structure or you take some, some cloud material, they collected their clouds from mountains in Switzerland. They also made some in the laboratory. If you feed the water droplets in those clouds into an analyzer, a mass spectrometer, for example, you can show that in the water droplets there's an above average amount of lead. Where did the lead come from? Well, the answer is from petrol engines, because for the last hundred years or so, engines have had lead in the fuel. We don't use it now, but, but people used to add lead to fuel in order to lubricate soft valve seats. That was what the tetraethyl lead did. And the lead would then come out in the exhaust and go up into the atmosphere. And it turns out that lead is a supersonic, brilliant, king nucleating surface. And what that means is that if you look inside a cloud, you find lots of water droplets. Clouds form when warm, wet air rises and the air expands because the pressure drops. This makes it cool, and this means that the droplets then coalesce to make bigger droplets. Atoms and molecules come together to make the droplets. And at the centre of those droplets, you usually find some kind of surface that's triggered this to happen. And that can be bits of dust, it can be bacteria even, and sometimes even dandruff has been found in clouds. But often lead is there too, and so the lead seems to have the perfect chemistry to encourage these water droplets to form. What are the consequences? Well, that means that all of the vehicles we've been driving around here on Earth have probably made the planet a lot cloudier. And because they've made the planet a lot cloudier, clouds do two things. Not only do they increase rainfall, but they also, because they're shiny, reflect light back out into space. So what this has done is to lead to a reduction in the amount of heat hitting the Earth's surface. In fact, these researchers estimate that they could have reduced the amount of light getting to the Earth's surface by about one watt per metre squared which on the scale of a whole planet could be quite significant. And this means that, effectively, by putting lead into fuel and making more clouds, we've offset some of the effects of global warming, which would have been there because of the CO2 that was being released alongside the lead from car engines. It does sound quite worrying indeed that maybe we've underestimated the effect that we're having on the atmosphere. But I have to say, dandruff in the, atmos- in the clouds is still <laughs> weighing on my brain. An intriguing thought, isn't it? But it it's is. absolutely true. There's a kind of bacteria too, Pseudomonas syringae, which uh, make their entire life uh, cycle. They live on plants. They have a certain chemistry which enables them to use ice nucleation chemistry. They make ice crystals form at a much higher temperature than they would do normally. So by doing that, they make holes in the leaves of plants, which allows nutrients to come out of the leaf of the plant that the bacteria consume. Then when the wind blows, the bacteria go up into the clouds. They loiter in the clouds using the same ice triggering trick to make more droplets inside the clouds which by then have carried them hundreds of miles away they then rain down the bacteria on a new patch of clouds uh, a new patch of grass and the whole process starts again and so these bugs have, have evolved to make clouds and the scientists thought that was the end of the story but also if you take careful samples you can detect samples of our own skin in clouds dandruff from us and animals extraordinary well spitting at the dinner table might be the height of bad manners for us humans but in the dolphin world it's quite acceptable that's because researchers at the worldwide fund for nature or wwf have recently discovered that rare snubfin dolphins from down under get together in groups and spit for their dinner well the snubfin is a very odd looking dolphin it's around six feet long and it has a big melon shaped head and as you might imagine short stubby fins and very little is known 
known about this extremely rare species. And it's in fact the only endemic dolphin species in Australia. So it only lives in Australia. And uh, it was actually discovered only in 2005. And up until then, it was thought that the Australian populations, which people had seen, um, it was thought they belonged to a different species, the Irrawaddy dolphin that lives in rivers and um, areas in Southeast Asia. But now scientists have begun to unpick some of the secrets of this mysterious dolphin. And they've seen them hunting in groups of six or more. Now, working together, these dolphins seem to chase fish up towards the surface of the sea. And then they herd them towards other dolphins by spitting out jets of water from their mouths. Sometimes they apparently shoot up in great big plumes right high into the air and sometimes straight across the, the top of the sea surface. But they're definitely doing it to, to, to scare the fish towards each other. And it's this kind of cooperation behaviour that's really quite rare. The Irrawaddy dolphins do do a similar thing. But to see animals feeding together in groups, um, you know, really cooperating between them is... It, seeing dolphins do this is quite a rare thing and using water is even stranger. But Is there something about their anatomy that means that they can do this water jetting trick or could any dolphin theoretically do that? It's just this particular group have, have learned this technique and they tend to pass it on to subsequent generations. I don't think we actually know, I don't think anyone's actually been able to get that close to any of these guys to look more carefully at how they do it um, but it's a very good question. I imagine it could be something that they might be able to do anyway. I mean we'd have to ask someone who works in an, in an oceanarium in an aquarium to see if cat of dolphins perhaps play with water and perhaps they spit, spit it out occasionally. That's possible. Because one group of dolphins have learned to put sponges on their mm. noses and that's the females because they ferret more on the seabed and are more likely to injure their noses. And I remember you telling everyone it's quite funny because if you look at them, you see these sponges on the ends of dolphins' noses which they pick up, put there, protect their nose and then they don't bash themselves on the seabed. Yes, ingenious. They are very clever creatures. They definitely have an intelligence um, that uh, exceeds many other wild creatures. But uh, the sad thing about these guys, this, these snubfins, is that uh, we we know so little about them, but they're already under a huge amount of pressure and, and the WWF are very worried about plans uh, to extend a port in Townsville, which is an important part of these uh, dolphins' range, um, and that's on the east coast of Australia. And various other things like construction of dams and dredging of estuaries and so on means that these dolphins really face um, quite an uncertain future, which is really quite a shame because they seem quite extraordinary and I'd love to see one myself in the wild spitting for its dinner. Although having said that, hasn't Australia declared a very big area of that Pacific seaboard to be a big marine conservation now. So actually perhaps things won't be as bad as that well in hopefully the long run. yes the Great Barrier Reef is one of the largest marine protected areas that we have and there is a large area that is set aside for conservation but um, I think the dolphins don't all live with necessarily within those protected areas so that, that also is something to consider. Thank you Helen Well also this week worrying news about what's going on in Mexico. We've seen the emergence of a form of flu H1N1 but it's not the form of flu H1N1 that we normally see seasonally in humans this form seems to be a swine, a pig form of the virus. So far, there have been a thousand reported cases and maybe f as many as 50 deaths. And it doesn't just seem to be confined to Mexico because cases have also now been reported in a number of US states, including the adjacent California, also Kansas now, and also maybe even New York. So we're looking to see exactly what's going on. And joining us is from Cambridge University uh, internationally renowned flu researcher, Paul Diggard, who's going to hopefully shed some light on this for us. Hello, Paul. Good evening. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. First of all, can you just explain for us actually what is swine flu? Because we've got our head around bird flu as a risk. How does this compare? What is it? Well, swine flu is, is influenza A, same as human flu and 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 bird flu, but it's a form that's adapted to infect pigs. So history says that pigs have had had flu for at least the last 100 years or so, 
And when you look at the, the genetics of those strains, it's pretty clear that actually the viruses that infect pigs, um, we've been swapping them backwards and forwards between pigs and humans for, for quite a while. So in the same way that birds have their strain of flu which occasionally jumps into us, pigs have their strain of flu which occasionally jumps into us and vice versa. It, it's a giant sort of genetic melting pot and in this occasion, this strain we're seeing in Mexico is a pig virus that's jumped out of the pigs and into the, the local population. Probably. I mean, the virus that's been found in people in Mexico and in, in the US, genetically it has some characteristics of swine flu, but that's not the same as knowing that it's come directly out of pigs into people. We don't really know where it's come from yet. So speculating for a minute, just talking about the mechanisms as to how it could have arrived, how could it have got out of a pig and into a person in terms of t to arrive at the sort of genetic situation we see with this virus now? It's speculation because I, I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows what, what, what has actually happened in, in Mexico. But the usual route is it's people that work in the pig industry, in the pork industry. They have close contact with pigs. That's the, the this direct transmission from animal to man or vice versa. So someone who's a, uh, a worker goes to work and comes into contact with a pig. The pig gives that person a pig virus directly. What about the other way around? If the person gives their human flu to the pig, same same situation. I mean, influenza in pigs is very similar clinically to to human influenza. It's a respiratory disease. The pigs have respiratory distress. Um, they run a run a temperature. The virus is probably transmitted by much the same route. Um, aerosol, perhaps, just general close contact will get the virus from one one organism to another. So, if a pig has got its own form of flu at the same time as a human form of flu then infects the pig. Is it possible the pig could act like a sort of mixing pot and you get out of that a hybrid virus which combines the worst bits of both? Yes, that's the theory. Um, I mean, pigs have been viewed as a mixing vessel for quite a while, um, partly because we know that, that we can swap viruses backwards and forwards between pigs, but even worse in a way is that pigs are also susceptible to quite a few strains of avian flu, and when you look at the genetics of the viruses that you find in pigs, it's pretty obvious that not only are they swapping genes between swine and human flu, but they're also mixing in avian genes as well, avian virus genes. So is that why we should be more worried about a form of the virus that's come from a pig than just a normal human flu then? What makes the, the current swine flu more, more dangerous is probably that it's antigenically novel for the human population. Meaning it looks totally different. We've never different. seen anything like this. So, so you and I and probably most people have had, will have already had H1N1 flu, but they'll have had the human strain. And at the moment it's not at all clear whether that gives you any protection from infection with this swine H1N1. And the fact is you've got to catch flu for the first time some point in your life, and most people don't die when they catch the flu. An appreciable number do, but most don't, luckily. So why should this one be worse then? What's giving it the edge? Well, we don't know that it is worse. What we know so far is that there's perhaps 60, 60 deaths or so, but we don't know how many people have been infected, so we don't know what the mortality rate is. It could be no more virulent than, than current human flu. It's just that there's a large number of, of infections that haven't been noticed because they've not been severe enough to be, for the person to go to a doctor. And based on what we know about the flu historically, and that history has a habit of repeating itself, we've had a number of pandemics over the years, the most famous that we've got defined as the 1918 Spanish flu, estimated 20 to 40 million people died with that. How does this event fit with what we know about those previous pandemics? First off, we don't know that this is going to be, is going to be the next pandemic. 
I mean, there's a real chance it could be, but we don't know. It could just burn out. It could go nowhere. Obviously, that's what you'd hope. If it does turn pandemic, then it would be different to the 57 and 68 pandemics because it was those were hybrid viruses between a, an avian strain and a human strain. Genetically, I don't think we can say that we've ever seen a pandemic starting from a, a pig virus before. The 1918 virus, we don't really know for sure where it came from. Probably avian, but it, it's hard to say because we don't know what the virus before was. But is there any reason why the next pandemic couldn't start with a pig? Oh, no, no. I mean, this, I, I think there's a reasonable chance that in a year's time we'll look back and think, yes, this was the start of the 2009-2010 pandemic. Let's hope not. Thank you very much, Paul. That's Paul Diggard, who's a flu virologist at Cambridge University. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. Now we join Sarah Castor-Perry to find out what happened this week in science history. This week in science history saw in 1878 Louis Pasteur give his important lecture on his evidence in support of germ theory to the French Academy of Sciences. The lecture described how diseases were not spontaneously generated but caused by microscopic organisms, an idea that was not widely accepted by the medical community at the time. Pasteur is considered to be one of the fathers of modern microbiology, along with Robert Koch and Ferdinand Cohn. For hundreds of years, it was believed that some life arose by spontaneous generation, where something living would come from something non-living, an idea first discussed by Aristotle. One philosopher in the 16th century even suggested a recipe for making mice, involving leaving a soiled cloth wrapped around wheat for 21 days. The idea of spontaneous generation began to fall out of favour as scientists began to suggest that diseases were caused by some sort of transferable agent. The first to observe microorganisms was the Dutchman van Leeuwenhoek in the mid-18th century, but it was in the 19th century that evidence was found to really support the theory. The Hungarian Semmelweis reduced deaths in childbirth at his Vienna hospital by insisting doctors wash their hands between autopsies and delivering babies, realising some contagious agent was being transferred by them. John Snow determined that something in the water supply coming from the Broad Street pump caused the cholera outbreak in Birmingham in 1854. One of the most famous experiments that provided evidence against spontaneous generation was carried out in Italy by Francesco Redi. He showed that maggots would not spontaneously generate from meat or fish left in sealed jars, but would appear if they were left uncovered, suggesting that they must come from the outside. His later experiments showed that the maggots came from flies. Pasteur's presentation to the French Academy of Sciences involved describing the results of experiments that showed that microorganisms, specifically the anthrax bacterium, could multiply in a sterile medium and that bacteria that cause blood poisoning, or septicemia, could grow and multiply without oxygen being present. He came up with three methods of removing bacteria from a medium. Filtering, heat or chemicals. The use of heat to kill bacteria in liquids, or pasteurisation, is still performed today on milk and fruit juice and is named after Pasteur. The Scottish surgeon, Joseph Lister, read the paper from Pasteur's lecture and insisted on the use of carbolic acid in his hospital to disinfect surgical tools, wounds, dressings and operating theatres. Infections like gangrene reduced dramatically. There are so many things we take for granted now. Wash your hands after using the toilet... 
doctors scrubbing up before and after operations, alcohol gel in hospitals and so on. But before Pasteur's time, doctors and scientists who supported this sort of thing were seen as rather eccentric. Pasteur's lecture was the catalyst for the medical community to wake up to the dangers of microorganisms and how preventing their spread could help to prevent diseases. Pasteur himself said of the ability to reduce infection and kill bacteria by using disinfectants that it is a consoling hope that science will not always remain powerless before such enemies. That was Sarah Castor-Perry explaining how this week in 1878 Louis Pasteur presented his evidence for germ theory to the French Academy of Sciences. And that's all we have for this Naked Scientist Newsflash, which this week featured Helen Scales, Chris Smith, Sarah Castor-Perry and our guest, Dr Paul Diggard. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you've enjoyed the Newsflash, then why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your science questions, and an experiment that you can try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientist.com, and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.